When we entered China, however, the rule book and the ecosystem was completely different for how you grow. Fortunately, we had had some productive conversations with WeChat, which was fortuitous at the time where LinkedIn was thinking about entering China and WeChat was thinking about expanding outside of China. We actually got a significant volume of new users signing up directly in WeChat wow. uh, as a result of that. Why do some companies succeed in driving growth while others fail? How do some individuals advance in their careers to lead teams that change industries? In the age of mobile, these are the stories of the companies shaping the way we interact with our world and the people who drive their growth. I'm Mada, and I'm the host for How I Grew This. Hi, everyone. I'm thrilled to have our next guest, Linus Chung, who is currently the head of growth at Coinbase. Previously, he's been on growth teams at companies like LinkedIn, Pinterest, and Tesla. Super impressive, Linus. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. So let's begin with how you're doing. I used to start with people's history, but I think the world has changed so much. Everything is different. How are you doing doing this? How is Coinbase doing? We're doing well, all things considered. Uh, I'm doing well personally. Uh, Coinbase is adjusting pretty well, but obviously it's a very different world that we're living in right now. We're all sort of working from home remotely and also staying inside as much as we can. So a lot of things have, have sort of changed in terms of how we prioritize, how we work together. A couple of things that kind of stand out to me is Number one, kind of company-wide and with our teams, we're kind of doubling down on compassion. Um, so every time we kind of hop in on a Google Hangouts or a Zoom call, we sort of spend the time to check in with each other. And so it's interesting where we might even spend sort of 15 minutes out of, the, out of a 30-minute meeting sort of like catching up and talking. And, and these things are actually really important. And, and I think that everybody has sort of taken their, their cues around uh, leaning into this and, and really, really kind of saying not just sort of like, how is weekend, but actually look a deeper meaning around how are you actually doing. So that's the first thing that kind of comes to mind. And then the second thing is sort of like company-wide, we sort of prioritized even more heavily than we had previously during the crisis. And so we sort of, Coinbase has sort of published how we're thinking about the crisis. And first of all, we prioritize, number one, the health, safety, and sort of well-being of our employees as the highest priority. And so certain things might take a hit, but the number one thing that we want to make sure is make sure our employees and our team members are safe. Uh, second thing is obviously then being there for our customers during this difficult time. Uh, we've actually had uh, conversations within the company about what can Coinbase do? What can we as a team do? Should we be prioritizing efforts to contribute to the crisis? And we sort of talked about it and thought about well, you know, in the backdrop of all these things, what Coinbase is offering is a financial service and an alternative to banking 1.0. In, in the context of all this, one of the best things that we think we can do is just do our jobs and have a, have a functional product that is being there and meeting the needs for our customers and helping them get access to the funds when they need it. And I think that that was kind of an expiring mission of really doubling down on why we exist and why we, what we will focus on during this time, which is building the best experience that we can. And then finally, uh, in terms of the things that we would be investing in, in a normal situation, we've made clear how we stack rank all of the priorities, knowing full well that there will be a bunch of surprises. There will be team members that might be sort of distracted by things that would in a normal situation seem, seem normal, like 
How do I go to the grocery store? And how do I find childcare? And these are things that are real that we want to, again, going back to the top priority of making sure the mental health and physical health and safety of our, our employees, number one, we may, in the middle of a quarter or a period of time, realize that we might have to drop something and being super, super diligent about what we want to prioritize and what are other things that are really nice to have, but ultimately we will be fine as a business if, if we sort of drop certain things has been really kind of a sigh of relief for, for folks that have sort of been feeling stressed out about how we sort of continue to meet ambitious targets and goals in this backdrop. So those are the kinds of things that we've been doing to adjust. I love the compassion. I think we, we started doing that too, but I think just making that something that your company actually focuses on and you make it very explicit, I think makes a lot of sense. So I think, uh, I think that's super interesting. So I think as we start thinking, as, as, as I'd love to kind of hear about your journey and how you got to where we are today. But before we go into the, you know, the story, tell me a little bit about some of the experiences outside of your professional life that make you you. So a little bit background about me. Grew up in the Bay Area. And in this backdrop, I was kind of son of immigrants that sort of came to the States and was really kind of like the typical immigrant story that has now become popular to share of uh, folks that have kind of built themselves being new to this country and really having that entrepreneurial spirit. My father, for instance, built his own business doing trade back and forth between the U.S. and Asia. And in that sort of backdrop, also within kind of growing up in Silicon Valley at a time where I think there was a lot more optimism about what technology could do. Those are the kinds of influences that really, really shaped me, including sort of being a 90s kid and being in high school at a time where I was thinking about what I wanted to major in for college, where I wanted to go and what I wanted to focus on. This was in the backdrop of the dot-com boom. And so I was sort of inspired by all of those things to sort of say, hey, Technology is really cool, and it's a uh, it's a thing I enjoy uh, as sort of a, a nerd and a hobbyist, and it's something that I want to go into. But always with the twist of kind of how can technology, quote unquote, make the world a better place? And this was this was sort of before this became a, a cliche that has been spoofed in many other places. And it's always been a thing that I have kind of felt uh, deep within me around something that I feel like is something I want to work on for my career. And so that was kind of the backdrop of how I grew up. Later on in my, my adult life, uh, I actually spent five years working and living in China. And that really, really shaped how I view the world. You know, I had previously kind of grown up in a 40-mile radius, having grown up in the Bay Area and gone to Stanford for college. Uh, and really, I really started thinking about, you know, being really curious about other parts of the world, particularly China, where there was this amazing growth story. And I wanted to really go out there and experience it. And that really, really changed my viewpoint even my own sort of identity, where growing up in the U.S., really always thinking about that I'm Chinese, that I'm Chinese-American. And it wasn't really until I lived in China that I realized how American-American <laughs> that I am. Um, Somewhere between two worlds, that, right? You feel like yeah, exactly. you don't quite belong in each one. I definitely identify with that. Yeah. So those are the kinds of things that have really, really shaped me. And so kind of the themes through those experiences are how can... I think about in my work, in, in my life, how can I work on things that could improve progress and help make the world somewhat better by me working on certain things. And then thinking about kind of working on passions and, and areas where I think we can help people and hopefully, you know, money and success will follow. But the first thing is sort of like, how can my own actions sort of make things better around me? And what do you do for fun? 
Now that and you're back in the Bay Area, so you went Bay Area, China, and then back in the Bay Area, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do I do for fun? I mean, uh, certainly in this environment, we're all we're all sort of adjusting again. So I'm staying home like a good like a good citizen, finding great ways of entertaining myself via obviously the the usual suspects of Netflix and whatnot. Uh, I live with my wife in the Bay Area. Pretty low key life. We we sort of hang out with friends. We go on hikes, little trips here and there when when we can uh, when we're in a normal situation. And you were mentioning puzzles. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that was probably uh, before we were recording. We were catching up on our weekends, and I guess the big the big uh, highlight for me was completing a puzzle over the weekend, especially in this quarantine period. So I thought that that was interestingly meditative in some way. Of like, you can kind of keep chipping away at a at a problem, and and eventually it'll all come together. It was it was almost um, it was it's been a while since I took joy in a jigsaw puzzle so that was a, a pleasant surprise I have one that I've been waiting to do for a long time I love puzzles so I'm like I, I'm starting I'm starting this weekend I started and then things got a little crazy at work but uh, hearing you talk about it got me really excited so switching back to career how did you end up in China what was the story of how you got to where you are today and tell us a little bit about that so I think my first hankering of uh, wanting that international experience uh, started in school when I signed up for uh, an overseas language program in Beijing. And I think this was around 2003. And that trip actually got canceled because of SARS, which is interesting given our current circumstances. And I think because of that, uh, I think I went the rest of my college career feeling this FOMO of I missed out on something and I really wanted to go chase chase after that international experience. And so signed with a management consulting firm right after school and worked out an arrangement with them where I spent my first six months actually working at their Hong Kong office. And that was fantastic, kind of a great first step into living overseas. And it was almost like this this drug that when I when I came back, I definitely wanted a, uh, some more of it. So finished out my time in consulting, ended up after that uh, joining a venture capital firm in the Valley, Lightspeed Venture Partners, to get closer to technology and working with early stage entrepreneurs. And after a couple of years, there was sort of a, a fork in the path. Either I go to graduate school or go and get some operating experience and decided to do the operating experience route. And one of the first investments that I worked on uh, was a China-based company and just kept in touch with the founder and kind of said, hey, is, is there an opportunity for me to pack my bags and come out to Shenzhen, China and, and uh, work with you all? And so this was an entrepreneur that sort of believed in me and believed in the opportunity and gave me a one-way ticket out there. And so that started the journey of kind of five or so years in China, where I worked at this company, a company called PCH International that uh, managed supply chain. Oh my God, um, Casey, Liam Casey. Yeah, Liam Casey. I did a project yeah. for them when I was in um, <laughs> MSNE. When I did my master's at Stanford MSNE, I ended up going to Hong Kong and, and working with Li Liam, he was so cool. I think they were just kind of taking off. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I should have known. Liam's so well-connected. He's such a great guy, such an inspiration for a person that uh, at least he claims to speak very limited Chinese, went out to China in 1996, and sort of here we are 20-plus years later. Um, He's Irish, You know, right? still thriving. Irish, yep. Irish founder. You know, that was that was an inspiration for me of here's a person that, you know, in, in all respects had no business succeeding in China and found a way. And so that's somebody that I wanted to kind of learn from 
And so I picked up a role there, uh, leading corporate development and strategy for them, uh, but in some ways kind of being Liam's right hand, thinking about uh, where to expand his business next, uh, helping him raise a couple rounds of venture capital, thinking about at a time where they were growing like gangbusters, being suppliers to folks like Apple and Amazon. I remember actually, I had moved out to China maybe a couple of months after Steve Jobs was on stage announcing the the release of the iPad. And PCH was one of the major suppliers for iPad-branded, Apple-branded accessories. And so we were a major beneficiary of the growth there. When did you work for uh, PCH? What years? 2010 to 2012. So crazy time. I met uh, Liam in 2006 when they were still just kind of taking off. Yeah, that's awesome. That kind of, in some ways, continued my, my China journey. From there, I thought I wanted to continue working in China, but focused more on, you know, how do we provide services and products to the Chinese domestic market? I mean, PCH was phenomenal, but in some ways, kind of, a, you know, the o- older China story, if you will, of like, here's a great place to make products uh, to ship to the rest of the world. Um, but there was a burgeoning kind of domestic market that I kind of got a taste of where towards the end of my time at PCH, I was one of the folks that helped bring a connection between Xiaomi, uh, which is a huge company now, but they were sort of a Series A or Series B startup, to kind of work with PCH to be one of their suppliers for accessories there. And that sort of got me hooked of here's an incredibly entrepreneurial Chinese company that is uh, sort of, you know, in some ways thinking about the best of Western or American playbooks of like, hey, here's great things that Apple does, but also applying it and transforming it to things that would make sense for China. And I thought that that was an incredible opportunity to learn more about what sort of products and, and services would would apply to a really fast-growing and fast-changing Chinese domestic market. And really wanted to focus there. From there, I've had sort of caught wind with an opportunity where LinkedIn was thinking about entering China. And so got an offer to be one of the first China-based employees where I led corporate development for LinkedIn, spending about a good several months to a year helping the company who had had sort of vague ambitions to to enter China and sort of uh, had a leg up in terms of thinking about the opportunity, but really not a ton of folks that are sort of dedicated of like 100%, I am all in, I am only here at LinkedIn because I want LinkedIn to enter and succeed in China. And that was myself and uh, less than a handful of other people at that time. And so I sort of helped the company think through the strategy for China. Who do we partner with? How do we think about regulations? And some of the trade-offs that come with that, specifically things like content for a social network, even, even it being professional and for the most part, less controversial, but still thinking through uh, some of those trade-offs and what we're willing to accept in order to be in China. Ultimately, about a, a year after I joined, we signed a joint venture with two local investors, which sort of opened the door for us to really be able to launch in China and then take those steps to hire a local team, get a local license, and ultimately start localizing uh, our products for the Chinese market. Any big learnings from that period and, and just helping you know an American company open up in China? Oh, so many learnings. I'll focus on a couple of things that you know I think are things that are more more commonplace or common knowledge now, I should say, because I think a lot more uh, Silicon Valley and American companies are studying the great things that are happening in China and the innovation. I'd say that when we were kind of entering China, there was still a little bit of that hangover and that uh, mentality that China just copies Western business models, uh, Western design, uh, or Silicon Valley designs. 
And I don't think that there was a full sort of appreciation and mutual respect, right, for Chinese innovation and Chinese execution that was sort of reciprocated the other way. A couple of examples would be, no matter whether you were fluent in English or you're using the products, I found that most people in the tech industry in China were very, very studiously examining, studying, dissecting Silicon Valley products. And you would see there are like tons of, for example, publications that would take, say, uh, TechCrunch articles or uh, you name it, and they would their business model was basically like translating a brand new article and like dissecting any sort of screenshots for products and things like that, translating them in Chinese, and they had like huge readers. And so you would think that a product like Facebook, which is generally blocked in China, you would think that a lot of folks in the tech industry don't know about this. But in fact, that was quite the opposite. They knew everything about Facebook, its products, what was working, what wasn't working. And I think that they learned really quickly, adapted to the Chinese market. And also over time, that sort of copy fast execution turned really into areas where they found ways to innovate and be very, very creative, adapting to their situation. We're seeing so much more of this now. We actually work with Xiaomi, and it's been so impressive to see how much they've grown, how much market share they're starting to get all over the world. And I think some of the best products that I've used, which are Chinese, I uh, I play a lot of mobile games, and one time I found this game and I became obsessed with it. And I was like, oh my God, this is like Clash of Clans, but so much better on steroids. And it was definitely yeah. a Chinese team. And I started like following their blogs and, and learning how they built the game because I was so obsessed with how good it was. I definitely think we've yeah. come to a place of mutual respect. I don't know if like it's universal, but I think people in tech like yeah. me really respect what's well, happening in China right now. Yeah, I definitely think that times have changed and folks are looking at China with and kind of a balance of kind of fear and, and respect. In some ways, I remember being in China when Uber was definitely duking it out with uh, Didi and many other sort of uh, ride-sharing companies at the time. And I think that from what I understand, Travis uh, and others in the company really felt like, hey, Didi is our number one competitor globally, not just in China, and really taking that that sort of competition seriously. And I think that many companies are in the Valley are, are, are seeing it that way as well, which, you know, I think there's, there's pros and cons to it, but I think overall healthy to be able to sort of learn from what is sort of the best best in class as a way to make your own products serve your customers better. You also had a, an interesting kind of failed experiment while you were in China. <laughs> yeah, I guess the failed experiment you're referring to is after we launched in LinkedIn China, we were looking for, for ways to break out and grow more virally and tell the Chinese world, hey, we're here. So we were sitting around the lunch table and uh, somebody had kind of joked around of like, hey, Linus should go on this uh, dating show. At the time, I was single. There was also a very, very popular television reality game show revolving around dating um, <laughs> that was... I think at its height was watched by 50 million people. <laughs> oh my, um, you, you, wow, that's impressive. Yeah, uh, I don't know if I got quite that many views, but uh, but yeah, it was, uh, it was just kind of an idea. And I said, hey, sure, why not? And I didn't think it was going to be something that was serious, but one thing led to another and I was accepted to kind of go on the show. And so, yeah, I went on the show, put myself out there under the guise of looking for true love, hoping to also slip in a couple of surreptitious kind of like, oh yeah, and then I work at this company that does this and uh, you should check it out. And it was a failed experiment in that, uh, I guess, first of all, I had a great life experience. It was so much fun. 
great for the team. Uh, we all have laughs about it. I have a fun fact for life. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, I guess the failed part of it was we, we weren't terribly successful in driving growth or exposure to LinkedIn. Turns out I'm not the first one to be thinking about this idea of going on this, this particular reality show for my own sort of business purposes. And I think the directors are much smarter than me. So every time that I thought I was slick and was on stage sort of talking about, hey, yeah, and then there's this company like LinkedIn that does this and that, we sort of ended up watching on TV the final cut and it was nowhere to be found. So <laughs> if you were to find the link, you would probably think that I was very, very earnestly looking for true love on national television. Did people recognize you in the streets after? <laughs> no, not as much as I guess I, I thought I would. I guess I would say, surprisingly, I was very, very popular among uh, older Chinese ladies who sort of said, wow, you seem like a really good person. <laughs> uh, um, but nothing in terms of sort of romantic interest. Again, happily married now, uh, having nothing to do with the show. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's such an interesting and fun story. And, um, and okay, so after China... Did you stay at LinkedIn? Did you come back to US for LinkedIn or did you, I know you've, you've also worked at Tesla and Pinterest. How did those transitions happen? From LinkedIn, I uh, transitioned to Pinterest looking for kind of a fast-growing, smaller company. Uh, at the time, Pinterest was pre-IPO. Uh, so I thought it was a great, great time to, to be thinking about a faster-growing company that could potentially move in a much nimbler way and taking the learnings around international expansion from LinkedIn and potentially applying them to Pinterest was sort of my mandate. After a while, we I basically led a couple of month exploration for Pinterest entering China as sort of a one-man army out, out in Beijing. And so we had sort of jointly concluded that, hey, while this is an interesting opportunity, winning in China is really going to take a serious, serious commitment from a product standpoint, financial standpoint. Uh, this was also at the time where Uber was pouring, I'm forgetting the numbers, but something like $200 million, uh, maybe even more, into China a year. And it wasn't something that Pinterest Pinterest was sort of culturally or even just from a business model perspective. This is when they hadn't really started monetization in at scale yet. This wasn't something that was right for Pinterest at the time. So that led me to um, you know make a decision of like continue to stay in China, uh, potentially looking for a, a, another opportunity or come back to the States, opted for the latter. Uh, this is a great time for me to uh, try out other things. And this is my first foray into product where I joined the growth team, helping to think about Pinterest, not only grow in the US, but grow in other parts of the world outside of China. Uh, and I thought that was a, a great experience and a, a great foray for me to try my hand at product. And I've been kind of working on product ever since, both in growth teams and also core product and machine learning uh, recommendations type teams ever since then. And do you have, I mean, from your time at Pinterest or even from your time at Coinbase or LinkedIn, do you have some like good growth campaigns that you help implement that worked well that uh, our listeners can learn from? One that was somewhat unexpected and fortuitous was, again, going back to LinkedIn. LinkedIn, for the most part, was very successful at growing and scaling in many parts of the world by sort of doubling down on a tried and true playbook that included things like SEO, as well as uh, email address input. And so those are the things that probably you'll see on your LinkedIn flow of like, hey, connect your email, connect your Gmail account or something like that to, to see what other contacts that you have and uh, finding a really, really uh, effective way to grow as a result of that. When we entered China, however, the rule book and the ecosystem was completely different for how you grow. 
for example, in China, it's very, very rare for people to really use email. I mean, most people have an email address, but I sort of use the analogy that it's sort of like asking for someone's fax, fax number. It's sort of like, why, why are you contacting me on my fax? And I think that that was kind of the analogy for, for LinkedIn, where you signed up uh, with an email address and that was sort of the default way to communicate with customers. And so asking folks to sort of import their address book wasn't something that was likely to succeed at scale the same way in China as it, as it did in other parts of the world. And so we were sort of searching for uh, where is that next channel of growth that we could unlock. And fortunately, we had kind of had some productive conversations with WeChat, which was fortuitous at the time where LinkedIn was thinking about entering China and WeChat was thinking about expanding uh, outside of China. And this felt like a really, really nice symbiotic partnership that could be had, especially because uh, while WeChat might have thought of Facebook being more directly competitive and probably would have never entered into any sort of partnership with them, uh, they didn't see the same thing with LinkedIn. It could, could have actually been mutually beneficial. And so through a series of conversations and product, product and engineering efforts, uh, we worked out a, a product feature where LinkedIn would have been prominently featured in the WeChat profile. And this was, this was something that we didn't really know how valuable it was until we actually implemented it. And it was fantastic because, one, user value for WeChat where WeChat was something that was very, very common that people were using for connecting with business contacts, for, you know, it was almost like a polite thing to do where you meet someone at a conference and you exchange WeChats. At the same time, your WeChat profile, the photo that you use, the name that you display is not often uh, tied to your real identity. It might be a photo of a cute cat or an animation or something that is used for self-expression. Similarly, using sort of an alias was quite common. So at the same time, it was sort of like, hey, I've got thousands of contacts in my WeChat. I met all these random people. Who are they? At the same time, you, you might want to not only have this uh, avenue for self-expression, but also put your professional uh, foot forward. And so uh, the feature actually pr prominently displayed the person's real name. And if you click through, you could actually see a shortened LinkedIn profile within WeChat. That turned out to be not only great utility for existing LinkedIn members, but also uh, a great way to discover what LinkedIn is. And we actually got uh, a significant volume of new users signing up directly in, in WeChat wow. uh, as a result of that. I, I love the story. I think, you know, sometimes finding the right partnership for you can be, you know, the best way of growth and much better than spending ads or spending ad dollars or things like that. And out of curiosity, like, how does your job today look like? How does your, as you think about growth at Coinbase and your role, how does that look like? I'm fortunate enough to uh, work with an incredible team of product managers, engineers, designers, marketers, data scientists, etc. And, you know, we apply a lot of the tried and true growth strategies and tactics, but more so the sort of mentality of uh, what it means to uh, work on a growth. And what I mean by that is sort of being very, very scientific, uh, being analytical, being uh, very deliberate about understanding the customer. What are they trying to do? And uh, trying to, one, get out of their way, removing as much friction as possible, finding moments where customers might be stuck and sort of amplifying their desire to get to the next step, and really just finding almost the the tracks that customers are already telling you they want to go down uh, and finding ways to amplify that. And so that, to me, is the true essence of growth. Now, certainly there are things, there are tactics and, and channels and things like that that are often used, but it's really the mentality of around how do you approach this problem of solving customers' problems through a sort of scientific 
scientific method and of implying that scientific method to uh, developing products. So that's the first thing. In terms of what we work on that's sort of a little bit different is Coinbase, for those that don't know, is uh, a company that is ultimately trying to build an open financial system with cryptocurrency as an enabling technology. And so we're pretty early in what we believe is a very, very long journey for transitioning the world to this to this new state. And so today, the primary use case for a lot of folks for acquiring cryptocurrency is they believe that uh, the value of cryptocurrency will be higher tomorrow than it is today. And so you might see that demand might shift based on market conditions. And uh, so we've learned to adapt uh, to uh, volatility and really make sure that we are focused on building the right things that will pay off dividends in the long run, not necessarily thinking about, hey, how do we tweak the metric week to week? Because there's a lot that is sort of out of our control week to week. But long term, if we're working on the right things, we are ultimately controlling the value of the company itself, but ultimately the value of, uh, we think we're contributing to kind of the value in the value proposition of cryptocurrency in general by increasing adoption and awareness and use cases for crypto. I love that. I think that's a really good mission to have. And I think, you know, when you work for a company that has a big mission, I think it's, uh, it probably makes, I mean, it does from my experience, but I love to hear yours. It makes going into work a lot more inspiring every day, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you've had a really interesting career. You've worked on so many different things. So, you know, we are now in this time when we're really having to ha- take a hard look at ourselves, our work, everything combined. Any big takeaways, professional or personal uh, to share after all of this? You know, I think that when I look back on my career, I've, I've sort of had the opportunity to work at many companies and try on different things. And I guess my, my takeaway and my, my philosophy is sort of like, it's never, never too late for a second act. And what I mean by that is oftentimes, you know, when I was younger, I always thought, what do I want to be when I grow up? And, you know, trying to get, get on the right track. And does step A lead to step B to step C? because I ultimately want to be at step Z, are these the right tracks? And uh, I've learned a little bit to um, let go of that and realize that it'll all be okay. And it's okay to try different things. And, um, you know, I'm working on product now. I work on growth now. I love it. It's very possible that I may try my hand at something, something else later on. And I'm not closing off any doors. And I had so many great experiences in my career, and I feel like I'm just getting started. A couple of examples that kind of highlight as I reflect back is, one example is I moved to China and uh, I spoke a little bit of Chinese, but really for all intents and purposes, I learned when I got there. And uh, it was something that it was a nice challenge for myself of like, hey, how do you, I, I got to survive. I got to get home in this taxi. I got to be able to order food. And it got to the place where you got to keep pushing through. And I got to a place where I was working in a fully Chinese environment by, by the end of it. And that was a really difficult thing to do while working as an adult. And many times there were, there were times where I felt discouraged or uh, folks would say, hey, it would have been better if actually you learned this when you were a kid or grew up in an environment at home, for example, where you were forced to speak Chinese and I can't go back in time. And so those are the kinds of experiences that I take with me where, you know, I might be faced with a brand new challenge to, for example, work on a brand new area that I know nothing about. And I, I always remind myself, hey, remember that time you figured it out and taught yourself Chinese? If I can do that, I feel like I can do anything. And so it's sort of 
uh, wisdom and lessons that I, I try to impart with others that come to me and say, hey, for example, I get this a lot, uh, interested in products. Uh, how do I how do I move forward? Is it too late? Do I have the right experience? Uh, and I try to uh, help folks out and help them realize, like, hopefully uh, we'll all be healthy and have long careers. And uh, it's never too late to, to try something new. Uh, as long as you are able to surround yourself uh, with mentors and people that care about you that, that give you the right opportunities. And if you invest in yourself, no one's going to hand you an opportunity if you don't work hard for it and, and try to make it for yourself. That's great. That's really great advice. So we're now going to move to the lightning round, which is obviously a lot lighter than the rest of the questions. Okay. If you had to delete all the apps on your phone, except one, what app would you keep? Uh, this is a hard one. So I really love podcasts, uh, not unlike this one. Really honored to be on this one. But I think I found that podcasts are just an amazing way to get connected to the world, get different perspectives. And so I would say either Apple Podcasts or potentially Spotify, because that sort of combines music plus podcasts. So I, I'd go with Spotify if I had to just delete everything about one. And then if you had an app to talk to an animal, it could be a type of animal or one specific animal if you have a pet, what animal would it be? <laughs> <laughs> Great question. Uh, so I don't have a dog, but I think I would pick dogs as a type of animal to talk to. I just think in this environment, we, we talk about sort of meditation and being in the moment and being happy and content with everything. And I think dogs have figured it out. So I would love to learn from dogs. <laughs> That's my animal as well. We've had tigers and elephants as, as answers before, but I'll stick with dogs as well. And then what's the most unlikely app on your phone? I might cheat a little bit. I can't think of an unlikely app, but I may use this opportunity to plug an app that I think is interesting and other people should try out. Uh, it's called How We Feel. The Pinterest founder, Ben Silverman, worked with a team uh, to create this uh, in the midst of this crisis. Uh, I think it's a really interesting app where super simple. You open it up. It's fully anonymous where you are basically checking in every day to say, are you feeling well or are you not feeling well? And if you're not feeling well, what are your symptoms? Uh, and this is useful information to, to share with uh, data scientists and medical professionals to help really track what's happening with the uh, COVID-19 crisis. And hopefully uh, they can use that information uh, to their benefit to make the right decisions for uh, where to invest and how are we doing in terms of flattening the curve. Um, and I think every new person that starts using it and starts checking in, they will actually donate a meal to a family in need. Okay, I'm going to download it. If people want to find you, how should they do that? I guess you can follow me on Twitter. I'm not terribly active, but it's just my name, at Linus Chung, or find me on LinkedIn. Okay, sounds great. Well, thank you so much. It was great having you, and you've uh, shared some interesting stories and uh, really good advice. So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review wherever you listen to this and share with someone trying to grow their career. Until next time, keep growing.